The Living Church, Catholic, Evangelical, Ecumenical. Today, we're going to get really practical, okay? And you may notice that this episode is a little longer than usual. That's because the topic is money, and specifically church finances. There's a lot to talk about here and a lot to learn right now. And so today's episode is going to include two conversations. First, we'll talk with Bill Campbell. Bill serves as the Director of Institutional Advancement at the Episcopal Church Foundation. He's also been a children's minister, director of Christian education, director of the annual fund at Virginia Theological Seminary, and executive director of the Network for Christian Formation, FORMA. And next, we'll follow up with Seth Cutter. Seth is a business analytics and automations expert, as well as a church treasurer based in Dallas, and he is keen to help churches stay afloat using applicable business principles. He's also married to our interviewer today, Abigail Woolley Cutter, and they'll discuss some of the things that you're probably thinking about most, like the Paycheck Protection Program, online giving, staying connected to parishioners, and thinking missionally in financial decisions. Also, they'll talk about the tough decisions, like cutting the budget and rethinking staff roles. And then they'll name some resources, some really hands-on resources that you can look into. They mention many of these resources for clergy and vestries, and some of them can be found on two main websites, episcopalfoundation.org and presbyterianfoundation.org. We hope this conversation today addresses some of your most pressing anxieties and also gives you good courage to hope. Bill, thank you so much for being willing to have this conversation with me today about church finances during COVID. No, it's my pleasure. It's always uh, it's always fun to be able to talk about uh, these kind of issues that are uh, near and dear to my heart, uh, even though they may not be everyone's favorite topic. Well, you have a lot of opportunity to talk to lay people and clergy across the entire Episcopal Church these days. So I want to know what mood are you picking up? Well, you know, most of the people I talk to, uh, you know, there's anxiety, right? So there's just a great deal of anxiety in the system. Um, and so uh, one of the things that I try to help people do is to figure out what are the concrete steps that we can do to try to kind of rake back some of that anxiety. Uh, we'll never dispel the anxiety. There's too much going on in this kind of pandemic too many stress points to be able to quell the anxiety. Um, however, there are certain tactics and, and, and resources that we can engage in to help people uh, relieve some financial anxiety or at least get a clear picture of wh what their financial situation is. Um, so anxiety is one of the moods. And then uh, there's a lot of hope. Um, and then especially, you know, right now with the uh, George Floyd protests going on, there's a lot of, uh, of a desire to, to, to get out and, and to do something and to stand for something. Um, and at the same time, how do we care for our congregation? Um, how do we shepherd our congregation through discipleship and, and, and growing closer to, uh, to Christ in their walk with Christ? Yeah, anxiety and hope. And then these questions about what is the mission and what is the ministry? Yeah, that's, that's great. So what specific needs do you see coming up over and over again? 
Well, the one that I get asked the most, and there's two things is, uh, you know, earlier in this uh, pandemic, it was the PPP all, all the time. Uh, I feel like I became uh, the de facto face of PPP for the Episcopal Church. And I am by no means, by no means am I the, uh, the, the person that should be the resident expert on that. However, uh, I, I did, uh, I did have a chance to engage uh, quite deeply on it. Um, and then the other one is online giving uh, is the one that I spend a lot of time talking with people about is how do you implemented online giving program, I've actually been extremely surprised uh, how many churches didn't really have a robust online giving program. Even churches that I would have thought would have had something, uh, many congregations just didn't have a plan for an online giving program. Um, and then lastly, it's not, it's, you know, it's not really lastly, but the other piece of this that I work on with churches a lot is, you know, Christian formation, right? Discipleship formation practices. How are we going to, how are we forming disciples when we, we don't have access to the congregation, right? And so um, when we don't, I guess rather we don't have access to the church building, we do have access to the congregation, maybe better than we ever have before. Um, and so uh, the trends that we're seeing in terms of like church attendance online, uh, you know, people have never had the type of consistent church attendance numbers that they're reporting. Um, now, you know, some of the, there are some issues with these metrics. Uh, you know, we, we, we get into these discussions all the time. You don't know if these people have been there for five minutes or for an hour. Um, but, you know, the point I always make to, to, to the leaders in churches is that you don't really have a guarantee that anyone paid attention for more than 30 seconds if they're sitting in your pew. So we need to look at this as the opportunity, right? We need to celebrate the fact that people are looking around at churches and particularly they're looking around at these mainline Protestant churches right now. We're experiencing better numbers than we ever have. Um, we're experiencing a better levels of engagement than we ever have. It's just that the, the mode has changed, right? And so we, we need to be excited about the opportunities uh, of online connection. Um, we need to push our ability to connect and worship together online as far as the uh, as far as we can, as far as the rubrics and orthodoxy will allow it. I should say that what we're experiencing now is really an opportunity to to remind people that the the responsibility and the and the heavy lifting of discipleship formation lies at the household level. Um, and so, you know, this, there's really, there's, there's not much great about this pandemic. There's not much good going on in the pandemic in the sense that people are dying and this is really serious and this is really difficult. However, there are moments of celebration. There are things to point to where we can build community online. We should. And when we are building community, whether online or in person, we should invite God to be in the midst of it. Um, and that's never been uh, more necessary. Uh, and, and in many ways, for many people, it has been easier to do it this way than in other ways. Yeah, thanks. Now, you mentioned the, the PPP, which for the sake of any listeners who uh, need a reminder, that's the Paycheck Protection Program from the federal government. Um, so ECF was really involved in sharing information about this, uh, how churches could uh, apply for it. What impact do you think it has had on our church? Are a lot of congregations taking advantage of it? Is it helping? Is it going to be enough? In terms of actually people applying for and receiving um, the payroll protection program support. I, I 
I've heard from lots of congregations uh, that did apply for PPP and that did get their PPP um, mm-hmm. support. The several dioceses that I've spoken to, lots of organizations did, um, and it is helpful. Uh, there's no doubt that uh, in a time when fundraising um, may be difficult, uh, that relying on um, weekly uh, plate donations is just not possible. PPP is a help. It's it, it's it's a it is a good thing for congregations um, to to have and, and to have access to. And even if forgiveness is difficult, which it looks like it's very complicated and it won't be very easy for everyone to 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 meet the criteria, even having access to those funds now uh, as a very, very low risk loan um, are, are still probably going to have a net positive uh, on the congregation. Um, one of the things that I'm really concerned about um, and, 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 you know, going back to my days as the executive director of Forma, which is the Network for Christian Formation and the Episcopal Church and beyond, Forma is now a ministry of ECF. Um, when I was the executive director of Forma, you know, my job was to care about lay employees of congregations. And the PPP money is going to help people keep their jobs longer if congregations are forced are were going to be in a position to lay people off. Now, it's not going to fix that for the rest of the year, but at least it gives congregations a moment to take a deep breath, to figure out what they need to do next, to figure out what their cash flow issues are. Um, and so I, I truly believe, you know, and, I, and we have to thank um, Senator uh, Tim Scott of South Carolina and Senator Marco Rubio uh, for including religious nonprofits, uh, religious organizations in the bill. We were not in it until almost the very last hour. And they uh, they led a strong push and um, and, and got us included. Uh, and, and so I, I hope it's been good. I know that it has been confusing. And I know that there was uh, a lot of ang- a lot a lot of anxiety uh, between even the diocese and congregations, and and how is that going to work out? One of the things that I think this definitely you know showed held a mirror up to was the relationship between the diocese and the congregation. Um, and so you know there were just a lot of hard questions that had to be asked before things were able to go forward. But everyone I've spoken to in the in the meantime has seemed to be able to figure this out. And, and to get the help they needed. Um, so that's been good. Yeah, thanks. Now, a lot of the uh, the majority of the people making decisions about these applications uh, and budgets will be lay leaders on vestries. So what resources do you think are uh, best for, for vestries to help them make wise decisions? Sure. Well, you know, working for the Episcopal Church Foundation, uh, I'm I'm blessed to have great colleagues, uh, and and they just uh, released something called the Finance Resource Guide. Uh, it was out in January. We had no idea. You know, we had no idea this was going to happen. Um, and it is actually an excellent resource. You can buy it through Forward Movement, and it does cost something. But we are offering uh, webinars based on the Finance Resource Guide, and in particular, the Episcopal Church Foundation is offering some uh, webinars that will deal with finance in the current moment that we're in. Um, and so you're going to be able to hear from people uh, like Carson Sierk from the Endowment Management Solutions team and Demi Prentice uh, and Jim Murphy, who are my colleagues at, at the Episcopal Church Foundation. And they can really speak deep, more deeply to this, uh, to this issue. So, you know, the Finance Resource Guide, the online offerings from the Episcopal Church Foundation, 
I understand that um, church publishing is going to have uh, some resources around this as well. And then uh, you could, and there's no reason not to go outside of our denomination here. Uh, the Presbyterian uh, Foundation has excellent resources as well. But the main thing I want to get across to people is that they have to find some sort of financial snapshot. You know, um, what is your what is your available cash on hand? Uh, what are your expenses for the rest of the year? Can you make it? What do you need in order to not get there? And then how can you uh, bridge the gaps? Right. And so uh, if PPP wasn't enough, how are you going to make it enough or how are you going to get more money in the door to help? You know, it's funny. I'm hearing from lots of congregations that are saying we're we're decimated. We're we're not getting the funding that we we normally would. We're way behind. I don't know how we're making it up. And then I, I I'm I'm continually shocked when I'm hearing from organizations and congregations that are like, our numbers are up over last year. We're having the best fundraising we've ever had. And uh, you know, there doesn't seem to be necessarily a whole lot of rhyme and reason to it. But I do think that congregations that are willing to just say, and organizations that are willing to say, listen, we need your help. We 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 have to get your support now. You know, we need you to fulfill your year-long pledges now. Uh, those are the ones that are going to be able to to really explain, right, and 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 show people the need, express the need, and then be able to show people what they're doing with it, right? And that's the those are basic fundraising principles, right? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And when it comes to budgeting, uh, choosing where to uh, increase or decrease, in particular, spending, I think a lot of churches are are looking at decreasing spending. Where might there be uh, areas where they would not want to decrease spending or or divert spending to something they haven't been doing before? Well, you know, this is great because so many people are talking about deficits and 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 where are we going to cut? Where are we going to cut? Where are we going to cut? You know, first of all, um, you, you've got to maintain your formation programs. Um, you if. <laughs> You know, we the rooted in Jesus gathering feels like a very, very, very long time ago now. Um, but the whole premise of that gathering was that, look, we need to root ourselves in discipleship into Jesus Christ, right? So, like, we need to we need to be uh, all of our churches need to be places that are forming disciples of Jesus. Everything else that goes on there needs to be about forming disciples for Jesus. And so, we we can't decimate our ability to actually form disciples. Um, so, you know, one, you don't want to cut too much, uh, in formation, if at all, you certainly want to try to keep staff available to help, um, with your excellent formation programs. And then, uh, alongside that, you know, it's, it's very difficult to raise funds if you don't have stewardship people on staff helping, uh, helping with your stewardship campaigns. Um, I'm really challenging congregations to look hard if you're making cuts. Uh, you know, don't let your youth and children's and family ministers be the first ones out the door. Now, that's not to say that there are not all the other ministries aren't formation as well. It's just in general, you know, we, we, uh, we it's just good to think about what your formation priorities are going to be. Um, and then the other place in terms of increasing spending Online community building for congregations is never going to be, we're not ever going to lose that now, right? I mean, that 
it is clear that people are hungry for online experiences. Uh, and so most churches by now have probably invested in their kind of webcam setup for, for, for getting morning prayer out every day and, and all that kind of stuff. And, and I would just say that, you know, don't, don't let that stuff gather dust in the corner um, when, when we get to some, when we get to the next phases of this pandemic, it's important that you continue to do online worship and online community building. I read elsewhere that uh, some people have been recommending building your budget from from a base of zero, zero, uh, zero expenses, and then add from the ground up the things that are most essential. Um, do you recommend that? And if so, um, what do you think the uh, some of the expenses that don't get added back into your budget would be at this point? The the main thing for me is just ministry excellence, right? So like we, we have to do this stuff really well. People have a lot of options in front of them. Um, and it, the fact that they want to choose to be at a to, at church, thinking about Jesus, focusing on Christ, you know, deepening their relationship with God, um, we, we need to do this stuff well, right? And so if you're going to start adding stuff back in, you know, the first things coming back in need to be about uh, forming disciples and engaging in mission, right? And so it's, 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 <laughs> gather the disciples and then get them to go ye into the world, right? And so those are the things that we need to focus on first, you know, and, and then after that, I, I don't know, I don't want to pick winners and losers, but, you know, uh, it, there are one of the things that we're, I think we're going to see is that, you know, especially, you know, we, we think 300, I, what, I don't even remember where I picked up this number. It was, um, you know, there's some, there's some thinking that, you know, we, we could see the closure of over 300 churches in the next year and a half. You know that a lot of people are going to have to figure out. Well, look, we're we're, we're going to do this without all the bells and whistles. You know, our building may not be open, but we're still going. We're still a congregation. We're still meeting. Um, and so, you know, what are the bells and whistles we can live without? And how can we how can we refocus everything we're doing on discipleship in Jesus? That's great. Now, it sounds like if you were talking to a vestry or maybe vestry and clergy, uh, it sounds like you would have something to say as a as a pep talk in terms of a, a way to think about themselves and their mission spiritually uh, as custodians of the church what are the top uh, questions or um, what are the top questions they should start with when they're making these important decisions right well the first question I always ask any vestry and leadership team is is what what signal are you pulsing? Right. And so before the pandemic hit, you know, I was just I, I would point out to people like, look, you have an online presence. You you have uh, people talk about you. Um, what do people say about you? And what does your website say about you? And what does your social media say about you? Even if you're still like Web 1.0 and you have zero Facebook page and zero social media presence, you're still telling the world something. What you're telling the world is that we don't engage much this way or we're not interested in engaging much this way. Um, and so the first question I have for them is, you know, what signal are you pulsing? What is the world picking up about you, um, whether you understand that or not? Right. And so that's the question I have for them. And then so then to flip that another way is that what signal do you want to be pulsing to the world? Do you want to be telling the world that you are a place that takes discipleship in Jesus Christ seriously? 
Um, we engage in scriptures in order to deepen our relationship with God and Christ. Um, we we are a uh, we are a community of practice, um, and we are a community engaged in the world through mission. You know, if, if those are the things you want to be able to, to tell the world that's what you are, well, then your budget has to reflect that, right? Now. And, and let me be clear, you know, like I, I, I've worked in some churches where like the one of the signals they wanted to pulse out is like we have an unbelievable music program where we're training young people and old people intergenerationally through congregational singing and in choir programs. And, and by the way, that is excellent formation as well. So it's this isn't to say that, like, look, you got to be running a soup kitchen and everybody's got to read in the Bible, um, although my God, please do. Um, but that's to say, you just have to think about like, okay, why are we doing what we're doing and how is it furthering the, the goals of the church? And then allowing that to really dictate, like, these are the goals we want to accomplish. This is what we want people to know us for. Um, and then this is how our budget is going to achieve that. Right. Yeah. Thanks. What do you hope? I mean, it's impossible to predict, but what do you hope the church will take away from this trying season? Well, I mean, the desire for connection um, and our role in that, right? So, you know, we're finding like people, it's just so funny to me, you know, at the beginning of this, uh, you know, the Forma Network put out this, like they, they did, they have a faith at home program and it's really good. It's really amazing. And they started doing it every single day instead of once a week. And, and I was like, that's exciting. That's really good. What, what a way to adapt. And, you know, people are exhausted. <laughs> you know, you got like yet another email coming in and and it's really amazing and it's really good. I have a four-year-old at home. I was really going strong with it. And like, I am exhausted. And I just think it's important to remember that like all of those resources are good and excellent. And we have to find ways for people to engage with them that aren't just absolutely exhausting. Um, and so even when one day, how, I don't know how many months or years and then when we're back to having the entire congregation being able to gather again, we still have to think about that, right? We still have to let that be part of our thinking of how we package things and communicate with people. Um, are we communicating with people in the ways that they want to be communicated with? Are we communicating with people in the ways that uh, allow them to engage with them at, you know, asynchronously or in another way at their leisure um, and are we communicating with them uh, to a point that is exhausting? Um, and then finally, are we gathering people in a way that brings them life and energy and shows them the love of God? See, those are the things that I hope we carry away from this is that we're asking questions about the way in which we are engaging people um, instead of just doing the thing we always do, because it's just what we've gotten in the habit of doing, thinking quite deeply about how we're engaging people. So, Bill, you have a lot of experience recommending platforms for online giving. What have been the best and uh, where should a congregation start if they don't have that set up already? There's a lot to unpack and, and, and a question of like, what is the best online platform for an online giving program? Um, and a lot of it comes down to, do you already have a database, right? We refer to that as a, as a CMS, as a uh, customer management system, right? And so, you know, the ones that churches use is like ACS, right? So if you already have ACS, well, ACS already has a product that will capture your online donations, automatically link them with the people that are in the database. And so, so much of the work is already done for you. So what I often tell people is, listen, don't worry so much about how much percentage they're taking off each donation or if they charge you a monthly or annual fee. 
you you are going to make your life so much easier by just going with whatever database system you have that integrates naturally. That is just that, you know, that's what you need to focus on. And, and so with that comes ease of use generally costs more, right? And so PayPal, super easy. You can literally have a PayPal button embedded on your website by the time you were done listening to this podcast. Um, it is super simple. It's more expensive. You have to, you know, there's a, there's a little bit more you have to do on the back end, but it's, it's super simple, right? And so uh, another system that a lot of congregations like to use is Tithely. And I, and I will say Tidely is great. Uh, and in fact, Tidely actually comes with its own database system that you can use if you don't have one already. So if you're starting from scratch and you don't have a lot of technical know-how, or more importantly, if the if you have people on your staff who, like your accountant or your stewardship director, who don't have a lot of technical know-how, a program like Tidely is is excellent. And they have a lot of bells and whistles that you can use to actually then, once you have a, a giving page, ready, then you can actually engage people to utilize that giving page. And so, you know, Tiley is another great example of uh, uh, might be a little more expensive than some of the others, um, but it's really good and really easy. And so you have to think about that. You know, so often I get a call from the treasurer of a church and they say, you know, I've looked at, you know, X program and, you know, they, they charge so much in fees and, and I found this other program and they only charge, you know, like 2%. And then I'll go look at it and I'll think, you know, man, you need a PhD in, in electrical engineering and, 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 a, and a master's in systems theory to understand that thing. Um, you should just go with the one that charges three and a half percent or three percent. And so what I often wind up doing is pointing people to a, a website run by a, a guy named Jason Smith. He's at Fathom Studio, uh, and he has a website called annualgivingtools.com. And to be clear, Jason is also trying to uh, market a product that he offers. His is very che- can be very cheap, um, but what he also does is gives people a framework for how do you make the decision of which uh, which online giving platform to use, and then he offers a matrix that allows you to compare apples to apples and oranges to oranges because so much of what these people are trying to sell you, it sounds like they're the same, but they may not be the same. And so uh, if you go to annualgivingtools.com and you can find information about this at at the Episcopal Church Foundation website as well. Um, But Jason does a really good job of laying out, look, these are the questions you need to ask. These are the things you need to understand. um, And these are the things you need to know uh, in order to compare them to make a a true uh, choice on the matter. But, you know, again, I just go to if you've already got a database, you're you're probably, especially if you're starting from scratch, you're probably better served just utilizing whatever your database offers. Um, If you've already got something going and you've already got an online giving page, um, you know, you got to also ask yourself, is right now the time to switch? You know, we got a lot going on. Uh, It's hard to meet in person to train people on a new system. Um, So try to figure out a way to optimize the current system as best you can. This has been a wonderful conversation, Bill. So I appreciate your time and I know our listeners will too. People aren't getting out much these days, but they are listening to podcasts. So if you're in publishing, nonprofit ministry, church technology, vestments, or anything in between, we would love to advertise for you right here on our weekly podcast.
We have hundreds of listeners a week. Our audience is cross-generational and it is growing. Just email Andrew Russell at arussell at livingchurch.org. That's A-R-U-S-S-E-L-L at livingchurch.org and he'll get you started. Thank you very much for being willing to have this conversation with me about church finances, some of the nitty gritties in particular. Now, your experience is in finance. Your uh, your job is to do business analytics, and you are the treasurer of a small parish in Dallas. So tell me from, uh, from your observation, what challenges do you think a small parish in particular uh, might be facing right now related to financial management? Well, I think there are three particular challenges that a small parish would face. The first one has to do with staffing. Uh, generally, a small parish is unlikely to have a full-time accountant or finance person on board. And so that may present a difficulty if you're outsourcing your bookkeeping or accounting, you may not be able to get a high degree of attention from the person who is doing the accounting work. Uh, They may not be able to help with granular forecasting that may be needed at a time like this. Uh, I think one of the other challenges is changes in giving. Obviously, with fewer people in the seats, it may not be as natural for people to give remotely. So you may see uh, a reduction in giving from people who are normally the very reliable givers. Uh, the third one is communication with members about the pledges that they're giving. Uh, if you know that a family is uh, suffering hardship right now, and yet they've pledged to give a certain amount, there's an awkwardness in trying to determine whether they are going to meet their pledged amount. Uh, Obviously, if somebody has lost their job, uh, their tithe is going to be a a much smaller portion of what it previously was. So I think communicating with those members is an awkward thing that is a, a challenge. Yeah, those those sound like very uh, very real, very concrete challenges. So thinking about budgeting, um, churches may be having to look at this in a new light. So from a financial perspective, what are the questions you would ask when taking a good hard look at the budget? Well, I think that this time can be a really good opportunity to uh, reevaluate what the core ministries of the church are. Each parish can assess what they currently spend their money on and which of those things that they spend their money on are going to be so essential to their identity as a parish that they will continue supporting that and funding that even if it uh, could lead the church to financial hardship. And then there are going to be other ministries that they might say, this has been good, it is no longer the time to continue this ministry. So I think that churches shouldn't be afraid to take that opportunity and see this as a time to refocus and see what is the the core ministry that this church offers or ministries that the church offers. Right. So basically, what ministry is so essential that without it, the church is not what it's called to be? Exactly. 
one example that I can give is St. Christopher's, uh, where I'm the treasurer. We have a Montessori school attached to the church, and we really faced a difficult question of, is the Montessori school such a core part of the church that we will strive to continue operating the school even in the midst of a pandemic? Or do we say, we want to be a little more conservative, we want to play it safe and uh, not operate the school for a year, you know, uh, just take a year off. And ultimately, we decided that the school is an integral part of who we are as a church. It is our ministry, our most visible ministry to the community. And we are striving to keep that ministry active. So that means taking a risk, but it was judged to be, I guess, so essential that the risk is worth it. Absolutely. And there are ways to mitigate that risk. And uh, that takes a a whole different level of uh, involvement with talking to the diocese about the risks that we have. But yeah, ultimately, it is a risk that we have decided the church sinks or swims with the school because it is a core part of our identity. And in terms of other questions that you would ask when uh, when trying to decide what stays and what goes in the budget, anything else you would add? Once you've highlighted a number of ministries that you believe are essential, you have to determine whether they are financially sustainable and how long they are financially sustainable. That makes a lot of sense. So how would you go about answering that question? Well, the simple answer to that is you forecast your cash. Uh, What is called cash forecasting differs from financial forecasting, which churches normally do at the beginning of each fiscal year. Normally, financial forecasting means you forecast your three major financial statements for the year. That is where your budget comes from, and uh, that's a very standard operating procedure for any church. Can you clarify what you mean by the three main financial statements? Yeah, those are the statement of operations, also called the income statement, the statement of financial position, which is also called the balance sheet, and the cash flow statement. Uh, And those are the three major financial statements, which again, every church should be forecasting that at the beginning of the year. Okay. In normal circumstances, that's ordinary financial forecasting. Right. And that looks at things on a monthly basis. That makes sense. And so uh, how might churches be forecasting differently during these uh, really uh, uncertain times? During these uncertain times, a monthly forecast may not be granular enough. So what we pull out in a situation like this is what we call a 13-week cash forecast. We say, for the next 13 weeks, I want to know on a week-to-week basis how much cash is going to be in my bank account at the beginning and at the end of each week. The reason for that is you don't want to come across a mid-month payroll and suddenly find yourself out of cash because you're going to receive a bunch of cash at the end of the month, but you don't have it right then and you can't make payroll. So drilling down to a weekly level is an important part of uh, understanding what your cash position is going to be in a more difficult time. 
Okay. So what are the basic components of this kind of forecast? It's a pretty easy forecast. Uh, it really only has three components or three sections to a cash forecast. The first one at the very top of the forecast is going to be cash receipts. That is any cash that comes in, no matter the source, counts as a cash receipt. And then the second section is cash disbursements. Any cash that goes out goes into that section. The third section is also very simple. It says, here is my starting cash balance at the beginning of the week, plus my cash receipts, minus my cash disbursements, gives me my ending cash. And those three sections, if, if anybody finds a template of a cash forecast online, you'll find that it breaks down into those three sections pretty cleanly. So you're saying that you can, uh, based on your regular expenditures and your regular income, um, you can pretty well predict um, how long your cash reserves are going to last to maintain the ministry that you've currently got going. Correct. And uh, for instance, we pay people twice a month. And so what I have built into the cash forecast is in the second and last week of every month, I show a large expenditure to cover payroll. And whereas the cash receipts come in much more steadily throughout the month, and uh, as a result, we can see throughout the month when we are going to have a lot of cash, when we're going to have less cash. And that's just an important thing if you are operating with a less than ample amount of cash. So what tools do you use for this? And another question related to that is, how much training does somebody need in order to be able to do this adequately? Well, the tool that I use is Excel uh, in conjunction with the bank statements. Uh, I just exported the bank statements from the church from the bank's website into Excel. Uh, so Excel is the only tool that you really need. You don't need QuickBooks. You don't need any other accounting software to do this kind of thing. But if you have no familiarity with Excel, it's going to be an uphill battle. As far as the training, I think if you are familiar with the basics of Excel spreadsheets and you are able to pull down a template of a cash forecast that is a pretty simple cash forecast, uh, it really shouldn't be something that you struggle with too much. Certainly, if you have a parishioner who has any degree of financial training, this is something that is a, a pretty simple thing to get going relative, especially relative to uh, a three-statement financial forecast. I see. What it sounds like you're describing is a, a system that is not too complicated, that somebody with some basic Excel awareness or some basic financial training could do a decent job of this forecasting. But at what point do you realize, um, or are there any particular needs that uh, you might need to outsource, bring in somebody from the outside? What I would say is if you fail, you probably need help. Uh, I think it is as simple as if you look at your bank statement and you see, we know all of this is our, all of these items are our cash receipts. They add up to $2,000. These are our cash disbursements. They add up to $3,000. 
So you know that you have a net cash outflow of $1,000. If you try to put that into your cash forecast and your balance, your bank balance doesn't change or something like that, it's going to be a, a pretty quick sign of pass or fail, sink or swim. Does the model correspond to reality in any way or not? Uh, if the numbers don't foot, if they don't add up, you probably need some help. Oh, you mean, so this is like the good old fashioned um, true or false prophets in the Old Testament. Does does what they say come true? It It absolutely is. If you find that the forecast is off by more than 15% consistently from week to week, you probably need some help or you need to just reevaluate your assumptions about when you actually have cash going out the door. Uh, it can be as easy as recognizing, oh, every month we pay $50 for pest control. And we always pay that in the second or third month or second or third week of the month. So you forecast that. You look for patterns of repeatability. And if there aren't patterns of repeatability, then somebody should at least know, oh, we pay this once a month or, or once a quarter instead of monthly and things like that. So in order to judge whether your forecasting is uh, is up to snuff, you need to be watching it pretty minutely from week to week. Is it bearing out with reality? Right. That's probably something I should have said before. You create the forecast once, but then every single week, I do it every Saturday, uh, you update the forecast for the previous week's activity and you see right then, what did I think we were going to spend? What did we actually spend? What did I think we were going to receive? And what did we actually receive? And it should be a weekly activity that you reconcile every week. I would strongly caution anybody against trying to do it more than once a week. You'll just end up really frustrated because you won't remember where you left off a few days prior. Thanks a lot. That's a lot of details. And I think that's extremely helpful. And hopefully for um, for any clergy or vestry members who are, are um, wondering how do we move from the vague to the specific, hopefully this has um, been a useful resource. Thanks for tuning in to the Living Church Podcast, a ministry of the Living Church Institute. If you'd like to support this podcast, you can find a link in the show notes that will allow you to give so we can continue to make these episodes. Look for more episodes coming soon on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts these days. You can also connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, our website, livingchurch.org, or on our award-winning blog, Covenant, at livingchurch.org forward slash covenant. I'm Amber Noel, your host, and I've been glad to be with you. Peace. Peace.